Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My guest today is Andreas Steno, the core consultant at Steno Research. And today, we went all over the map. We began by talking about the CPI numbers. They were down in December. I got Andreas's explanation as to why he thinks that's the case and what he expects them to do in the future, and therefore how Powell and the Fed will respond from a rate perspective. We talked about the deglobalization trend, or as he puts it, friend shoring and what this means, what countries are likely to benefit from new alignments with the West or the East, and the sort of under-the-cover proxy wars that are likely to occur when governments need to get access to resources that they will no longer have access to. Think Congolese cobalt as an example. Some interesting takes on this. So fascinating interview. Uh, I really enjoyed this. I hope you do too. As always, beneath this piece of content, there's a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. It's free and I publish every Sunday. I love writing it. I share my biggest takeaways and action steps from conversations just like this and plenty others, or whatever's catching my attention in the macro environment. Here's Andreas Steno, enjoy. All right, guys, welcome back to The Jay Martin Show, and I'm joined by Andreas Steno. Andreas, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks for making the time. Thanks for having me, Jay. Okay, so here's where, we're, where we'll start. Um, I fired over a couple of questions in advance. And what are you most focused on right now? And one thing you said was China reopening, potentially wreaking havoc on the recession narrative, at least short term, right? So can you expand on that a little bit for me? Well, for, first of all, if you ask economists in investment banks, or if you ask portfolio managers from hedge funds, from asset managers, etc., they all told you the same thing just a couple of weeks ago. We will face a recession this year. Right. Uh, I don't necessarily disagree with that view, but since New Year's, we've had a couple of things unfolding that could actually break havoc with that narrative, at least for the first half of this year, the Chinese reopening being one of them. Um, and the interesting thing is that we've actually seen a buildup of momentum in the Chinese economy already ahead of New Year's. Uh, so they will now unleash that potential and that momentum uh, of the economy uh, right at a time where we need it the most. Um, and right. if we look at various leading indicators out of China, for example, the amount of credit given to the real economy in China, so lending from banks to corporates to households, etc., um, we actually have a pretty decent gauge of what's going on in China in three to six months from now. And on such indicators, China is bound for a substantial rebound um, during the first half of the year. And that's before we even discuss the reopening. Uh, so to me, this is a pretty interesting story that is yet to be fully priced in by markets. Uh, obviously, everything with just a, um, a small link to China has been rallying like crazy over the past couple of weeks. But in any case, I find this story uh, to have legs and further legs, right? So uh, copper, Germany, everything with just a tiny link to the Chinese economy will have to um, reprise as a consequence of this. Can you elaborate on just one component of this? You touched on the Chinese credit market and how the economy was poised for a rebound before, before we even get to the reopening. And I just want to understand that bit a little bit better myself. So the 
data that I track is based on lending from commercial banks to corporates and households. Um, okay. So when you see banks increase lending, I consider it a symptom of uh, the following couple of things. First of all, it means that they've increased their risk appetite. Um, right. And I suppose that Chinese banks, um, they don't increase their risk appetite unless they know something about the future path of the COVID policy. Um, so right. that was one of the first signs I saw um, during the autumn um, of this reopening. Um, and that was why I was pretty bullish on this reopening already in November and December last year. The second thing is that it also means that the willingness to take on debt is there. Mm -hmm. And that is of importance as well. We have the same kind of willingness to take on new debt in the US and in Europe right now, which is interesting given that we have this recessionary scare ahead of us, right? Uh, so it also means that the consumer is not overly scared of a scenario of too high indebtedness into this recession. Uh, and I think it's a symptom of savings being larger than usual, um, hitting uh, or right before a recession. And that is an interesting schism because if we have larger than usual savings amidst the slowdown, it may also mean that the slowdown takes a while longer to really materialize. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we've been talking about this recession for six, nine months in a row now. Uh, and the reason why we keep postponing the actual timing of this recession is the amount of savings. Uh, and I mean, ultimately, we will get there. Uh, but as of now, the average consumer or the average corporate is not too scared of taking on new debt to pay bills, which to me is a signal of um, risk appetite in general. So could you point to that being evident. So there's an abundance of savings prolonging um, any kind of a hard landing, globally coordinated recession, because people have a bit of cash in the bank. Um, banks are still lending, right? Uh, would that provide a bit of evidence to you that in fact, we would experience a softer landing than these macroeconomists are forecasting? Not at all, but okay. I think it's a timing question. Um, okay. So to me, it makes sense to play this soft landing game for the next three months. Can I ask you a question? And How would you define a soft landing anyways? Like this, this term gets thrown out all day long. You know, how, how would you put a bit of a definition to that? Well, I only think that we have a couple of soft landings to actually look at in history. Okay. Um, if we look at the US economy, uh, the Fed managed uh, to create a soft landing in the 90s. Um, so that's one example. Uh, and it essentially means that the economy slows down. We get a small increase to unemployment, but everything sort of flows from there. Um, it's almost impossible not to forecast rising unemployment from here. But yeah. if we get just a tiny increase in unemployment relative to the current level and a very short-lived drop in economic activity um, in nominal terms, then I suppose we could call it a soft landing if we rebound within a quarter or two, right? Um, the thing that makes me upbeat on such a scenario is the 
landslide that we've seen in energy prices over the course okay. of the second half of last year. Yeah. Uh, I think that will contribute a whole lot to real wage growth. Um, as a consumer, you basically look at wages uh, relative to inflation, uh, and in particular, relative to inflation in necessities. Uh, and if the price of energy drops, we know that the price of food drops with a time lag, yes. since energy is a, as an input source yeah. in the production of food. Um, so we know that the price of energy and food will drop during the first half of this year, at least in year-on-year -year terms, which also means that um, we will get a nice little boost to wages relative to inflation for the average consumer in the West. Um, and that is one of the reasons why I think we see this willingness to take on debt right now, as we do um, in average households, in, uh, in average, uh, uh, among average uh, corporate decision makers. Uh, so ultimately, that increases the chance of a soft landing. The reason why I don't ultimately buy the soft landing is that we know that increases to interest rates work with the time lag. Yes. The reason being that the average consumer, the average corporate, uh, will not be faced with this increase in the interest rate until later, right? Um I have a 30-year fixed mortgage, for example. So I don't care right now. I will probably not care in a couple of years either. But if you have a, say, three to five-year fixing on your mortgage, you will start caring about this in, say, nine to 12 months from now because you can then see that uh, the next fixing on your horizon will be an ugly one relative to the one you have on your mortgage right now. So I think between say six or nine months from now, we will reach the point where the average consumer will have to look at indebtedness as an issue due to the upcoming refinancing of their debt. Um, we will see decision-making among corporates reflect the risk of refinancing at much higher rates. Yes. We have a mountain of refinancing ahead of us in the credit space. Um, I think in between 60 and 70% of all corporate debt will have to be refinanced within the next few years. When you say um, all corporate debt, are you referring to a specific geography? The credit, uh, the credit market in the West, yeah. Um, okay. So, I mean, it is a massive mountain of refinancing ahead of us. The reason being that right about everyone took the decision to issue short-term debt during the pandemic for some reason, even though it, it was more or less fr free to go further out the yield curve. Um, I think we we all agreed during the first half of the pandemic that interest rates would never go up again. Uh, at the time I worked in, in, um, in asset allocation. Uh, and I mean, in hindsight, it was pretty clear that uh, everyone, including myself, turned into idiots during yeah. that period of time, right? Um, one of the first things that I always brainwashed all of my employees with in, in asset management was the so-called discounted cash flow model. Okay. Um, so when you look at an investment project, you discount all of the future cash flows with the yield curve, basically, right? Yeah. Um, so if the yield is expected to be, say, between zero and half a percent in 20 years from now, you don't really punish cash flows further out in the future uh, in an investment model like that. Uh, so it basically meant that um, someone telling you that they could 
earned a living by sending people to Mars in 2070. They had a good case during those couple of years. They don't have a good case right now because you punish those future cash flows much more. Um, and I think that is an interesting change of scenery relative to what we have right now. And it takes a bit of time to adapt to that. Um, and slowly but surely, uh, some of my former employees, uh, employers, they, they've basically taken the decision to stop buying um, as a consequence of this, right? Uh, so it is quite a, a change of scenery and it takes time for it to actually materialize in decision-making and investment decisions and also in household psychology. So ultimately, yes, this is a game changer from an interest rate perspective relative to what we saw during the pandemic, but it takes a whole lot of time before we actually realize it. Right. Now, a bunch of things that you've pointed to here being, you know, 60 to 70% of corporate debt needing to be refinanced in the near term. Same thing with a lot of mortgages. And I know in Canada, in 2022, something like 70% of new mortgages were just variable, right? So out the gate, subject to rate changes. Um, you talked about, uh, you know, savings of consumers maybe delaying, um, I guess, recessionary activity, but eventually those savings will be depleted. And then you even said, it's almost impossible right now to not forecast massive unemployment in the future. So, so maybe the Chinese reopening will... Um, negate recession fears for the short term, but everything else you're saying right now leads me to believe you're expecting quite a deep recession eventually. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. If we look at usual lead lag patterns between the rise of interest rates and the subsequent um, downfall of economic activity, um, then we should expect the manufacturing sector to suffer big time this spring but we should expect the service sector, so the bulk of the economy to suffer during the second half of the year. Um, the manufacturing sector is much more sensitive to the cycle and to interest rates. Um, and therefore the manufacturing sector will reflect this increase in interest rates swifter. But as soon as the manufacturing sector slows down, I consider it a symptom of a lack of demand from households. And that lack of demand from households will also slowly but surely show up in, in the service sector. Uh, but you stop buying crap at Walmart before you st uh, stop buying healthcare and education, right? Um, yeah. So first things first. Okay. Now, inflation numbers came down a bit in December, right? Did that surprise you? And do you expect the CPI to continue to decrease? Yes, um, and yes, <laughs> to okay. a certain All extent, right. to both yeah. questions. Um, what surprised me the most about the last inflation report uh, was the housing component. Um, so the housing component is still smoking hot in the US. Uh, so the average rent, um, at least how it's reflected in the consumer price index is still smoking hot. It, uh, it is rising at 0.8% a month. Um, and that is obviously uh, not something you can take comfort in as a central bank. But the issue is that the survey um, in the US and in the consumer price index um, is a lacking survey relative to reality. So you basically ask respondents to uh, answer whether their rent has gone up or not during a month. Uh, and typically, 
you don't face an increase to your rent every month, right? Um, you have a contract where you have an annual uh, raise, for example. Um, and therefore, there is a time lag between the actual developments, the underlying developments in the housing market causing this increase in rents and the way that it's reflected in the CPI index due to it being survey-based. If we only look at new leases, um, the price of, of a rental apartment is actually dropping now on average. Uh, which is interesting because it's not reflected in the CPI index yet. And this is a major game changer to the CPI index during Q2, Q3, and Q4 this year because it works with the time lag. Other than that, um, if we just deduct that category, we remove it from the inflation basket, we, are, we actually already have deflation in the US. And I think that's interesting. Remove the housing component, and then we get to minus 0.5% month over month in the inflation index in the US. Uh, so yes, I clearly lean in the direction of lower inflation uh, because the only thing preventing the inflation index from truly dropping is the housing cost. And it is about to fall off a cliff. We already know that. And you have high conviction in that. I've heard you speak about uh, potentially general 20% decrease in housing value is that yeah. round where your head's at yeah i mean we even see regions with a drawdown almost similar to that since sure early yeah. summer last year right well, canada well, being, so a, many being an example markets right? yeah. Yeah, yeah i mean last couple of years there were some markets that just went bonkers i live in one actually i live in i'm in one of these sweet spots that's like a small town of twenty thousand people 45 minutes outside of a major metropolis and those towns just got uh, a rush of activity during lockdowns because everybody wanted to be out of the city, but not too far from the city at the same time, right? And we bought here two years before the pandemic occurred. And I thought housing was already too expensive, but you know, I have three kids, I needed a bigger house. And I was <laughs> like, it's a 20 year bet, not worried about it. You know, rates are good, exactly long-term fixed mortgage. Uh, and then despite what I thought was terrible timing from an investment standpoint, we ended up winning in the sense that our market became super hot over the last couple of years. And now it has begun to cool off. And I'm really curious how far that will drop. I'm curious to watch it. Yeah. Um, so we released our 23 outlook for real estate okay. across the globe today uh, in my small research shop. And um, I have a background in uh, real estate, private equity as well. Okay. So um it is one of the things I just love watching um, because I actually think the real estate market works with the time lag to equities. Mm. Um, since mm. it, it's, it's an illiquid market, it takes a while before global trends actually um, show up in, in real estate. And if you, if you try to um, create a heat map across the globe um, of real estate markets, I would actually be the most scared about Canada, okay. sorry to say, yeah. no. and Sweden. Those are the two countries in the world with the highest indebtedness relative to the highest amount of variable mortgages. Um, and that's a really, that's a really yes. nasty cocktail right now. Highest indebtedness versus the amount of variable mortgages. Is that how you, yeah. 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 Okay. So yeah. I look at these two measures and, and if the, um, if they um, if they point uh, in the same direction, then it's a really nasty cocktail right now. It doesn't really matter if you um, have a truckload of debt if 
you have a fixed mortgage at the same time, right? Um, yeah. That's my case. Uh, I'm levered to the titties, to be honest, but I have a fixed <laughs> mortgage. <laughs> um, so um, it, I know that I can pay um, yeah. the dues. Um, yeah. But I mean, if if I had a variable mortgage, then I would be um, be sweating right now. And I don't have that. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me, you know, it's interesting. I, cause I'm the metropolis I'm close to is Vancouver, British Columbia, yeah. which is sort of world-renowned. Um, real estate market uh, or world-renowned real estate bubble, depending on your perspective. And my thoughts on this are, are interesting. And I want to share them with you and just get some perspective because uh, everyone always talks about the Vancouver real estate market being way too hot, way too much of a bubble, way too speculative, and it has to crash. Simultaneously, you can find those headlines going back to the 1970s in that city. They've always existed. And uh, last year I was attending some, uh, some, uh, some campaign meetings for uh, leaders who are looking to run for mayor and for um, uh, premier of the province and um, just listening to the debates and conversations that were occurring. And what always struck me as weird is that when the real estate conversation occurs in the you know, political campaign conversations, it gets bipartisan support that there's a, there's a housing crisis in Vancouver. Housing's too expensive. We need to fix this, right? And everybody chimes in and says, you're right. Absolutely. We need to fix this. Uh, housing has just gotten out of control. And I am, I'm always the outlier in the room looking around saying, what are you guys talking about? Like, look at a window in Vancouver, right? It's beautiful, 360 degrees, right? You got the Pacific Ocean and the coastal mountains. It's pretty much an island with water on three sides, finite space. It's an attractive market to the entire world. It's safe, predictable, clean. Why, like, why would real estate be cheap here? Like, let's just wrap our minds around this, right? Um, and, and that's just one, I know that's one component of what drives the real estate market. There's also rampant speculation in the Vancouver market. A lot of mainland Chinese money floods in, you make a bit of dough, you live in mainland China, you want to get out of the country, we'll park it in a, a penthouse in Vancouver, right? And then if you ever have to flee, you got a place to go and you got a little money garage protecting a couple million bucks. But um, yeah, any thoughts on, on that kind of outlook on, on local markets like that? Well... <laughs> When we talk about the Canadian market, it's, I guess it's impossible to find a housing market worldwide uh, with a bigger price boom over the past 40 years. Uh, <laughs> yeah. may, may, maybe New Zealand is, uh, is competing. Okay. But um, in, in any case, uh, what I find interesting in relation to this discussion is um, the outlook for interest rates long term, right? Uh -huh. um, over the past 40 years, we've had almost constant tailwinds from lower and lower and lower and lower and lower interest rates. Um, yes. Since the 70s, right? Um, yes. Yeah. And all the way through that downtrend, each and every investment bank told you next year, interest rates will go up. Next year, interest rates will go up, right? Um, all the way through this downtrend. And as soon as investment banks started talking about interest rates being zero forever, they started increasing, right? <laughs> Which is kind of interesting. But uh, in any case, it's, it's hard to imagine a three decade long tailwind from interest rates from here, given that we are so close to the zero law bound, right? Um, and I guess that is um, a natural tailwind that you just remove from the housing market. Uh, but if we set that natural tailwind aside, um, there is a supply issue as well. And I guess that's been one of the reasons why 
we've seen an increase in um, in the house prices in various metropolises in Canada, um, along the coasts in the US, um, in various metropolises in in, um, in Europe. Uh, and I guess the big question now is whether demographics will support that lack of supply over yeah. the course of the next three to four decades as well. And also here I have my doubts um, since we don't reproduce ourselves any longer. We've become too rich. Um, so you're an outlier. You have three kids. Um, that's an outlier by now. Uh, I have one. Um, I'm I'm more average. Um, I guess the average now across the West is in between 1.4 and 1.6. Okay, um, interesting, yeah. yeah. So ultimately that means that the population will simply shrink unless we yeah. import people, right? Um, one thing I can guarantee you is that it takes 20 years to create a 20-year-old, right? Or rather 21 years yeah. <laughs> if we start tonight, right? Um, so demographics are actually pretty easy to forecast if we set um, immigration aside. Uh, and therefore, unless we accept massive immigration over the next three decades, then I actually think that we have a... Um, a supply glut instead of a supply scarcity of housing. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and, and the, the the real estate developer counter to that in Western Canada anyways, is that our immigration numbers have been bonkers for the last 18 months. And uh, however, um, developers have been just paused on creating new supply because of all the uncertainty um, around the economic climate. So they're expecting the opposite to occur. That's a short-term uh, symptom, I would say. So long. Okay, so a couple of things I want to pull on there. Uh, oh man, so so many things. First of all, uh, we talked about the demographic challenge uh, that we're facing in so many developed nations and around the world, right? You look at a country like China or Russia, they've got more 60-year-olds than 50-year-olds, 50-year-olds and 40-year-olds, 40-year-olds and 30 Same thing. And US is headed that way. Japan's there as well. This is global. And what do you think, if you have any thoughts, and if you don't know sweat, but do you have any thoughts on what that might do to the pension system when eventually you've just got this balloon of a population, the boomers essentially are all drawing simultaneously on our pension system. And those of us who are still contributing to it is a shrinking number. And it almost appears to occur sort of like a Ponzi scheme where it functions as long as there's enough working population paying into these systems to support those who are drawing on them. But eventually when that pyramid reverses and the population drawing is supported by this minor fraction of people contributing to it, it's got to implode, right? Um, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, what we know today is that we cannot guarantee anything at all in 30 to 40 years from now when it comes to pensions. Yeah. Um, and uh, I guess this is an, is an extra interesting, interesting discussion since we have a Canadian and a Dane talking to each other, uh, probably yeah. the two countries in the world with the biggest pension systems relative to the amount of, um, of people living there, right? Uh, per capita, we have some of the biggest pension savings worldwide. Uh, okay. South Korea is another example, but... Um, and that is also the reason why we can have so much household debt. Uh, what you do when you take up, uh, say, four or five times your um, your income in, in mortgage debt is that you basically reflect the assets, the assets that you have in pensions um, on an asset liability. Um, okay, yes. sheet, right? Uh, so that's also the reason why I can take up debt. It's because I expect to have assets in the future uh, in, yeah. in the pension fund system. Uh, and... I guess that is the ultimate litmus test of this system, because if we get issues demographically over the next three to four decades, if we don't have 
a, an increasing workforce any longer, um, then the whole foundation on which this leveraged system is built upon will start to, um, to become more and more volatile uh, because we've built the foundation of all of the indebtedness of our housing market on the amount of pension assets that we have. And if we struggle to keep up pace um, on a yearly basis with the payments to the, um, to the pension system, it may ultimately also be an issue for the liability side of that equation. And that is your housing debt. Mm -hmm. So it is, a, it is a big problem. Yeah, the they're not compartmentalized. Okay. Oh. Uh, so, okay, so I want to back up to inflation numbers then. Um, thank you for that. I was curious what your thoughts were. Now, as we said, inflation down in December, your expectation is that it continues decreasing. I'm not sure if you saw this shift in how the Fed will begin calculating year-over-year -year CPI. Did, did you see this, how they're changing the methodology of the calculation, which struck me as so wild. I mean, if you don't like what the numbers tell you, then yeah, sure, change how you qualify the yeah, numbers. Yeah, yeah. But maybe for context um, and, and correct my, uh, my juvenile understanding of this, but you know, year over year CPI has historically been calculated by comparing it to two previous years. So for example, 2022 year over year CPI would be compared to 2019 and 2020 as an average. And then the rise in that number is what the 2022 CPI year over year number is. So if you take a two year average, you get a two year average. But if what the, the shift in methodology is as of February uh, of this year, is that the Fed will now calculate CPI with just one year. And this allows them to calculate 2023 CPI looking only at 2021 um, consumption numbers, not 2020 and 2021 consumption numbers. Okay, how, how'd I do that first of all? Did that make sense well, to you? Maybe you can probably do that. Uh, to, to a certain extent. Um, so what they changed is the um, period in which they look at consumption data for the so-called weights of the CPI index. So when they construct the CPI index, they try to construct a real life consumer basket. Um, and before February this year, they used two years of data to construct this basket. And now they will only use one year of data. Uh, I think that was the change. Um, they've always measured inflation exactly versus one year ago. Um, yes. But now they use weights from just one year instead of a two-year average. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that's interesting um, due to a, a, a lot of um, reasons. Uh, first of all, what we see this year is an extreme emphasis on the price of goods as a consequence of the consumption patterns throughout the pandemic. If you, um, if you lock up people, quote unquote, you can only buy goods on the internet. You cannot buy services. Uh, and that was what happened in 2020 and 2021. We only bought stuff on the internet, right? Uh, so the consumer basket was sort of skewed towards internet goods and stuff like that to an extent never seen before. Uh, they want to get rid of that uh, because it will obviously not reflect reality anymore. Uh, since we are now on the other side of the pandemic, we mm. spend money on services again. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's it's always easy to claim that the timing is weird, um, that um, 
it is kind of, uh, it is also tempting to sort of throw conspiracy theories at this change of methodology at a timing of high inflation and all that. I get it. Uh, but I actually think that the reasoning behind this change of methodology is okay for once. Um, I see a lot of issues with the methodology, uh, but this is not the biggest issue I've seen. Um, and one thing I'd like to point your attention to um, when we talk about CPI methodology, so the inflation um, measurement methodology, is the so-called quality adjustments to inflation. Um, they also call them hedonic adjustments. Uh, so what they do, for example, um, when they measure the price of an iPhone, is that they measure the price of an iPhone relative to the capacity of the iPhone or the underlying speed of the iPhone to ensure that they reflect the ongoing increase in quality of the iPhone. So in nominal terms, it's more expensive today to buy an iPhone compared to 10 years ago. But in the CPI index, it is reflected as a drop in the price because you pay fewer Canadian dollars per megabyte of space, uh, of space on the iPhone. Um, and that's interesting because ultimately it means that uh, the average Joe over time faces an increasing uphill battle um, in terms of keeping up pace with the price of technology, right? Because if technology is reflected in quality adjusted terms, it usually means that it drops in price um, in the inflation index, but uh, in real life, it has actually increased in price also relative to wages. Yes. Okay. Okay. You know what? That, I'm really glad I asked because I appreciate, appreciate your perspective there on the change in methodology. How this was explained to me was, you know, if we're looking for a more favorable CPI print this spring, and we can adjust the math that creates that CPI prints, and this will do that, we decrease from two-year calculation to a one-year calculation. In theory, that may drop the spring CPI numbers by up to 300 basis points, 200 basis points. And that's one way to look at it. The way you've described this is like, yeah, maybe, maybe that's an incentive, but also we have to acknowledge there were some real anomalies in the data over the last few yeah. years. And in order to correct those, we have to adjust to get back to some kind of realistic approach. I'm very happy that I asked but, that. I appreciate but, that perspective. But, but Jay, um, it, you're absolutely spot on because uh, we've had issues with non-farm payrolls data, with inflation data, with purchasing manager index data over the course of the past three years. Um, and the data quality is uh, as bad as it's ever been right now mm. because of all kinds of attempts to adjust the methodology to the post-pandemic era um, because of all of the volatility in these key figures due, the, uh, due to the pandemic. Um, one way of, of, uh, of showing it is... Um, if you look at the non-farm payrolls report from the US, uh, it's been um, telling you over the past nine months that we see an increase in employment in the US. So on a monthly basis, we see more and more people being employed. But if you actually ask people, uh, so there is a household survey where you call people, do you have a job or not? Um, then you get a completely flatline development since March of 2022. 
and I guess the reason is that the non-farm payrolls report is not able to reflect a labor market with more than one job on average for the okay. um, yeah. average employee, right? Uh, and through this inflation crisis, it's been more and more common to take on two jobs. Um, so yeah. that is another example of really bad data. Uh, and yeah, you're spot on with, with regards to the inflation. The data has been bad over the past couple of years, and it's the same thing with the employment report. Okay. And so either way, what what you might expect then is a decreased CPI number this spring. And what's your expectation then of how the Fed will respond to that? Do you think they'll wave the victory flag and say, we can pause rates maybe in 2024, decrease them again? Do you have any expectations there, Andreas, of what may how rates may respond to this? Well, I mean, first of all, I like to own bonds right now um, okay. as a consequence of this. Yes. I think the bond market is pretty simple. I mean, if inflation is rising, um, the bond market will reflect it, but also <laughs> uh, it also, also holds true in the opposite direction. So if inflation is veining, no matter whether it's due to uh, methodology or actual decreases in prices, yeah. then um, I, I think the bond market will reflect it. Um, so that's one of my key calls right now. I like to to buy treasuries as a consequence of this. And the issue here is that this is one of the most well-anticipated recessions in history, um, meaning that the interest rate market is already on top of it as well. Uh, if you look at the spread between a short-term interest, interest rate in the US by say September this year, relative to September, 2024, you have one of the biggest inversions ever of the front end of the yield curve. So it means that the expected interest rate in September 23 is much higher than the expected interest rate in 24. Yeah. Um, and it's not typical that we have so many rate cuts being priced in ahead of the actual recession because we don't have the actual recession here yet. Yeah. Uh, and that 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 is tricky to sort of assess uh, from an allocation perspective because it could break havoc with the positivity that we see right now in equities when we get to the second half of this year, if the Fed is not able to confirm that pricing, it means that we would repeat 2022 again, both bonds and equities selling off simultaneously. Now, while, you know, rate cuts priced in in anticipation of a recession that hasn't occurred yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny, um, right? But um, yeah, yeah. yeah, it's wacky, wacky. Well, let's get into uh, capital allocation. I'm really curious how you're allocating capital um, for the year and what you're long talking about for the decade and expectations, but where, where are you allocating cash right now, Andreas? First of all, U.S. Treasuries uh, in anticipation of a clear decline in inflation, both due to changes to methodology, but also due to actual uh, price deceleration in the real economy. Um, okay. Secondly, I dislike the U.S. dollar as a consequence of it. If the U.S., CPI deflates um, yeah. relative to the rest of the world. It's typically not a good signal for the US dollar. And when the US dollar weakens, it means the world to asset allocation, not least if you're replaced in Northern America, because as long as the dollar is strong, we usually have the rule of thumb that the US is outperforming also in asset terms relative to the rest of the world. 
while if we see an actual decline in the price of the dollar relative to the euro, to the Japanese yen, to the Chinese yuan, et cetera, it's typically a signal that the rest of the world will outperform U.S. assets. Uh, so right now, I'm placing my bets in regions outside of the U.S. Uh, I have some chips placed on Latin America. Um, I have some chips placed on Europe and some chips placed on Asia. Um, and if you ask the consensus risk taker, um, they will tell me that I'm crazy uh, because it's been the wrong strategy for, I don't know, 13 years in a row to bet on the rest of the world versus the US. Mm, okay. But my best guess is that the timing is pretty decent to do so, at least for the first half of the year, and then we can reconvey by summer. When you say you're putting some chips in Latin America, what does that look like? What are you buying? Well, for now, I'm buying local bonds in um, denominated in Mexican peso and uh, Brazilian reals. Um, so I like that bet. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical around the equity markets um, in those regions. Um, not least since they have a, um, a clear correlation to U.S. equity markets. I, I like equity markets in, um, in Asia more, um, and I like equity markets in, in um, the eastern parts of Europe even more, uh, both due to valuation considerations. They're not particularly expensive. Uh, Europe almost trades as... Um, an emerging market when it comes to valuations of equities. Uh, it's not as bad as three months ago. Uh, but one thing is certain, if China reopens fully, um, and I think we will get more, more and more hints of that throughout the course of January here, then it is better news for Germany than it is for the US, uh, since the ties are much closer from a business perspective. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And then... Um... Prior to the interview, you mentioned copper and some metals. Yeah. yeah. So talk to me about how you invest in the copper sector in the metals market. Well, um, I have a setup where I can buy copper futures. Um, so that's what I do. Uh, but you can also buy into the copper story via ETFs. Um, I think broad-based commodity ETFs will perform well during the first half of this year. Um, interestingly, commodities tend to perform almost into the recession, right? Maybe even into the first month of the actual recession. It is a clear late cyclical bet. Uh, one of the reasons being that supply is typically constrained into the uh, latter part of a business cycle. Um, the reason being that CEOs of energy companies, CEOs of, of metal companies, they also fear the recession. So they constrain supply ahead of it. Uh, that's pretty typical. Um, and the demand is not waning yet. And now we bring Chinese demand of, in particular, industrial metals back online to an extent that we haven't seen through the past couple of years uh, due to the perma lockdown out there. Uh, and also on the energy front, you should expect a bounce in the demand um, as a consequence of this Chinese reopening. Mm -hmm. So I think it's a pretty decent story to buy commodities, uh, broadly speaking, but I'm more upbeat on industrial metals relative to 
energy commodities okay. as a consequence of inventories. Um, if we look at Chinese inventories of copper, uh, they are near all-time lows, and we haven't seen any rebound ahead of the actual reopening, while China actually managed to build reserves of gasoline, for example, ahead of the reopening. Um, so obviously, given that it's a centrally planned country, um, they can they can buy energy commodities ahead of a reopening. Um, it's not like they decided on the reopening overnight. Uh, they obviously planned for it. Uh, and it's visible uh, from inventories numbers from uh, from China on energy, but not on industrial metals. So I would prefer metals to, to energy. Interesting. And when you look at industrial metals, you know, copper, maybe nickel. Um, iron ore. Iron ore, yeah. Okay. yeah. Steel, steel alloys, et cetera. Hmm. And then you get into the specific energy metals. Do you look at lithium, cobalt, metals like this, or are they too obscure to fit into the portfolio? Well, honestly, I haven't traded them yet. Um, yeah. But given the amount of dollars that will be thrown at EVs, um, in the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, I find it to be an extremely strong structural case to belong lithium and cobalt. Um, but it is at the same time kind of a long China proxy trade um, because if you look at the supply chain of lithium and, and cobalt, uh, it is yeah. at least mostly owned by China, if not fully. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that scares me a little bit always. Um, I'm not like perma negative on buying Chinese stuff, but um, it somehow feels out of my control to be long Chinese things. Um, I rather prefer to reflect such bets in things a bit outside of the control of the Politburo in uh, in China. And is that like a philosophical approach, or is that um, protecting yourself from jurisdictional risk? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I I dislike the political risk uh, of an, a sudden abrupt change to um, to decision making in in China. Um, even though there are flaws in our democracies in the West, um, we know that uh, we don't get bizarre decision making overnight, except for the pandemic, um, <laughs> and. We don't have the same kind of comfort um, around China when it comes to political decision making. Uh, there is also the risk of outright civil war in the Democratic Democratic Republic of Congo, um, which is the source of cobalt uh, worldwide. Seventy six percent of the global supply, I believe, yeah. comes from the Congo. Yeah. Currently, Wanda is uh, clearly trying to meddle. Uh, with um, politics in Congo. Uh, and Rwanda is certainly an ally of the West. Um, it is the country that uh, we return asylum seekers to in Denmark, in the UK. At least we had a deal with them. Um, we, we struggled to get the actual deal up and running. Uh, but I, I think that is a symptom of the West trying to uh, also um, ultimately, via a proxy, uh, try to gain influence in Congo. So it is a tricky, tricky place to uh, invest right now. That is something I want to understand more. So there is some sort of a Congolese civil war simmering, or maybe a bit of smoke, not fire yet. Uh, Rwanda seems to be meddling a little bit 
inside the Congo as a instrument of the United States or the West, you could call it, which makes all the sense in the world as we just spoke about where cobalt comes from. And no matter what you're holding, my iPhone, <laughs> your laptop, the cobalt in that device, at least part of it, definitely came from the Congo. It, that is the source of the vast majority of the supply chain, which is, I think, like 100% under Chinese-operated control, the mines in the Congo. Um, it's, it's okay, that's, that's a very interesting uh, topic I want to jump into. Yeah, um, and, and, and Jay, obviously, given Europe's history in Africa, uh, yeah. we would never intervene directly if we um if we can if we can sort of get away with it um yeah. i mean france is intervening here and there still but um due to this history of uh, colonization and stuff like that we we will always meddle via a proxy yeah you'll and send a Rwanda what, trojan yeah. horse in there yeah. yes exactly yeah, yeah of course of course okay fascinating um you know a couple of things that you you, you you touched on there i just want to want to maybe get a general outlook. I feel like from, from I'm in my thirties, you know, my entire life I, I've existed in this bull market in access to a wider variety of goods for a cheaper price. The quality of my life has really just increased. Um, and that's largely a consequence of some semblance of global trust enough that we could share resources, right? And if you wanted to uh, seek out the cheapest price for whatever the input was, whether that was labor, you could take it abroad, whether that was energy, you could take it abroad, right? And manufacture things here, source products there. And that global supply chain, that era of trust has probably been fractured, right? And I think maybe we were already entering some new kind of a cold war and the, the hot war in Europe maybe accelerated that and battle lines are different than they used to be. We'll probably be so for a while. Uh, do you expect, like, you, you know, we just touched on the, the the Rwanda Trojan horse maybe infiltrating activity in the Congo. Would you expect more strategic activities like that for countries that need now to look far more critically at their supply chains? We want to build electric vehicles. Well, it turns out we don't have the stuff if we don't get along with the countries that do, right? And do you expect countries to be more specific with who they share their resources with? And therefore, do you expect governments and I guess corps to therefore be more st strategic with how they're investing in their supply chains in the future. One of the things that I've noted um, from this week's World Economic Forum in Davos mm -hmm. is that uh, more and more CEOs from Western companies talk about so-called French shoring, not near shoring, not reshoring, but French shoring. Um, and yeah. I guess yeah. French shoring. The, definition of French shoring is that you can outsource, for example, production activity or parts of your supply chain, but only to true allies. Um, and China is obviously not a true ally. Is India a true ally? Well, we're closer to a true ally, but they still do business with China. They still do business with Russia. Remember that India is the biggest buyer of Russian oil day in and day out. Uh, even though there is a proxy war ongoing between the West and Russia right now. Um, so I think French shoring is the actual trend you need to, to look for. And I mean, that is why I'm so positive on Latin America uh, geopolitically, because they have the best chance in many decades to, um, to take use of this current situation uh, geopolitically. Uh, they can 
enter the frame as friends of the West and they still have cheap labor. They even have right. a good location. Um, so that is clearly a trend that I'm watching. Um, and ultimately, it is more expensive to manufacture stuff in Mexico relative to China. It is more expensive to have double security in your supply chains. We probably need that given what we've experienced over the past couple of years. Uh, it is more expensive to have two ships every time there is uh, one barrel of oil because right now um, India and China, they have to build ships like crazy cargo ships to bring oil from Russia to India and China um, yeah. as a consequence of the G7 embargo on um, Russian oil. Uh, so there is not enough shipping capacity over time to ensure that Russian oil can actually reach its clients. Uh, that's another example of um, a trend that will probably over time emphasize price increases. So yes, uh, all of the tailwinds that we've seen in recent decades will, will dissipate as a consequence of geopolitics. And it all started with Ukraine. Maybe if I am allowed to don my tinfoil hat towards the end here, maybe it all started with the pandemic. Right, right. Interesting. Um, and just one comment you made, uh, you said it's more expensive to manufacture in Mexico than it is in China, which would have been my assumption. It was Peter Zihan last week, I heard, claiming that labor in Mexico was a third of the cost now that it is in China. And I, I was so shocked to hear that. But what you Well, I, I think he's right. Um, but it kind of depends on which type of labor you're looking for. Uh, sure. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and interestingly, um, China has been moving pretty fast in what I called highly skilled manufacturing workers. Okay. Um, I, I honestly, the reason why Apple is still assembling iPhones in the southern parts of China is that no other country is able to do it, more or less. Maybe we could do it on. Uh, I mean, if we completely reshort. Uh, manufacturing activity of iPhones to California, whatever, uh, we would probably be able to do it. But you couldn't just ask the Mexicans to to uh, assemble all of the iPhones overnight. Sure, the workers yeah. are not skilled enough. And I guess Peter is right when he when he's looking at wages of such skilled workers because it is a skill to be able to assemble um, tech products. Then the price of the um, average working hour is, is now substantially higher in China relative to, to Mexico. But ultimately, if we were to um, think of a scenario where the assembling of iPhones uh, moved to Mexico, I think the total cost would end up being higher than in China because of um, weight pressure increases, because of a, a lot of issues initially with actually assembling the iPhones at the same pace. So from a productivity um, point of view, it would end up being much more expensive anyway. Would you expect this new Cold War between the East and the West, if I can call it that, and if you think I'm off uh, out of line, just let me know. Would you expect that to increase, those divides and those walls between the East and the West to increase over the next decade or two? As of now, um, you can basically rule out any whatsoever trade relationship with Russia. Um, it is getting increasingly likely that we will um, try and do the same to China over the course of the next couple of decades. I don't consider that a short-term story, but on the margin, um, 
every single decision maker um, in boardrooms will certainly decide not to use China as the factory of uh, of the company anymore. Um, and that all changed with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the Chinese pseudo backing of it. Um, it is it is no longer politically palatable to take that decision. Yeah, it was three years ago, but it's not today. Yes, yes, interesting. Wow, Andreas, this has been really fun. I'm really glad that we can make the time. Um, I want to point people to where they can find more of your work. They want to read what you're up to, stay up to date. Where can we send them? Um, you can go follow me on Twitter at Andreas Steno, uh, or else you can find uh, my little research shop at stenoresearch.com. Um, so either on Twitter, all content there for free, uh, or on stenoresearch.com, where I, I charge a little bit to become a subscriber. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, good. No, I mean, you know, it's, that's, the, that's the price of, of good intelligence these days. We were speaking before I hit record about the rise of independent journalism, independent research, and how important this is, and how a lot of high-quality analysts and journalists are not only maybe better off that way, but they're being forced that way because they're being forced out of me bigger platforms that need to stick within a narrative right this is what we collectively believe is stay, stay within the lines or beat it and uh you know we don't have to go down that rabbit hole today i think we'll we'll save that for another another day but uh you know I, i'm all for it man uh paying for good intelligence good research i subscribe to more newsletters and platforms than i did three years ago that's for sure and i'm very happy with my decision Okay, stenoresearch.com and at Andreas Steno on Twitter. Once again, man, it's been a pleasure. Really glad we could do this. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. Uh, I enjoyed the conversation a lot. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor. Follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.